Welcome to Bob Got a Microphone, the podcast that exists because I, Bob Tarantino, bought a microphone. There are a lot of interesting people out there, and these are some of their stories. I find it really compelling when someone is passionate about something, especially when they're passionate about something that isn't obvious. It's not something they can monetize. It's not something everyone else is talking about. It's something that they're bringing focused insight to in a way that you would otherwise never think about. A few years ago, I learned that Graham Henderson, previously a lawyer and music industry advocate, was really into Percy Bysshe Shelley, the romantic poet who died 200 years ago. And he's passionate about surfacing aspects of Shelley's art and politics in a way that is accessible and relevant to contemporary readers. This is his story. All right, Graham Henderson, welcome. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for taking the time to do this. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I'll, I'll just say that there's not many people who uh, can't reach out to me and ask me for my views on a romantic English poet who died 200 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that says more about me or you, but either way, let, let's see where it, where it takes us. When I look at your website devoted to Shelley, the tagline is meet the real Percy Bysshe Shelley. Mm. And so what are you correcting? Like what, what, what's the misperception that people have about Shelley that you're saying, no, this is the real Shelley? <laughs> well, it's uh, been, shall we say, a very interesting reception uh, that this poet has received over the centuries. And in fact, many people have claimed to be writing about the, quote, real Percy Bysshe Shelley. I'm not the only one. Uh, and I think it says a little bit about his protean nature and uh, his um, value as a, a thinker and a writer and an essayist that so many people want to claim him as a standard bearer for their cause. And it began almost immediately upon his death. So most people today associate Shelley with his lyric poetry. And uh, so they would know he's a love poet. I remember, I, I remember a poem, The Clouds, something like that, was it? Or Love's Philosophy? Yeah, yeah, I read that in high school. Or far more commonly, well, there was this poem about some Greek or Egyptian guy, Ozzy, what? Ozzy, Ozymandias, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 I remember that from high school. And that's it. But of course, that's now. And in fact, it was sort of similar when he died. He was very, not very well known, but he was a very radical left-wing, I guess we would say today, individual. He was a humanist. He was a uh, Republican in the sense of uh, being non a non-monarchist. And the thing that really terrified everybody in those days was uh, that he was an atheist. And so when he died, there was an effort to make him palatable to the public, led by Mary, his wife, who produced a beautifully edited volume of poetry called Posthumous Poems. He died at 29. And it sort of edited out, not entirely, but it edited out a lot of the political stuff. And you sort of fast forward to the Victorian period, and you had this tussle that began over whether he was a, a lyric poet who was an incredibly misguided youth and said crazy things because he was young, or was he a real fire-breathing radical? 
And it culminated in many respects in 1888 at a meeting of the so-called Shelley Society in London. Now, the Shelley Society literally attracted the who's who of London intelligentsia. And among the numbers were no, none other than Eleanor Marks and uh, uh, her husband, Aveling, uh, the daughter of Carl. And she did a fire-breathing speech before the Shelley Society, responding to another speech in which she ended with the ringing words, we claim him as a socialist. So the fact that the leading uh, socialist uh, of the day felt the need to claim him, to claim, to bring him back from this, from where? Well, another example of it was Engels. Engels was famous for referring to loving the radical Shelley, and he, he preferred to say he, he, he liked the, uh, the, the Shelley, his Shelley was not the Shelley of the, ca the castrated Shelley uh, of the uh, Victorian anthologies. So why this was happening, I think there was a political undertone, and the Eleanor Marxes of the world didn't really win. It was the anthologizers who wanted to sort of expunge his radicalism. They kind of won. Uh, and Shelley's reputation began to decline in the early 20th century. And to the point when I studied him in the early 70s and late 70s, it, it was nobody was studying him anymore. He was considered to be irrelevant. So that's a very long-winded answer to say that my goal was to couple of things. I wanted people to see him as he was, as I think he would have liked to have been seen, and not how others wanted to see him. Uh, and I, I, you know, I make it quite clear, I, I want folks to see him as a radical and uh, as someone who speaks to our generation. That's one of the unusual things about him. So kind of a long answer. No, that's fantastic. So there's a lot to pull at there, which we'll get to in a second. But let's just start by picking up on something that you mentioned at the end there. So, or how were you introduced to Shelley? How did he become part of your life? You mentioned you started reading him in the in the 70s. Yeah. But what was that like so in a formal education context or? Well, when I was little, my father handed me a little tiny black volume, which had about 30 poems in it that he typed out on his typewriter. It was a little tiny ring binder, like the pages were about like three inches wide and six inches tall. And I was given 50 cents for every poem I could remember. <laughs> and one of them was Shelley's poem, Arethusa. I can still sort of remember uh, its opening stanza. And um, it's probably the only thing I can remember by heart. And I was young, didn't think twice about that really. And it wasn't until I got to university where I ended up in an English program that I don't know whether that resonated me or if it was a gateway drug or it was something, but it kind of wafted back, uh, you know, and I encountered him again in a course. And uh, of course, like many people who are approaching Shelley for the first time today, it is that radicalism. And I was young and I was very political and I thought, wow, here's a bit of a fire breather, anti-establishment, vegetarian, feminist, um, you know, you, it goes on. And um, so I kind of thought, oh, I'll take this up. And uh, so I did. And I wrote my thesis on it and MA thesis. And bef before I, I verged off into law. 
Yeah, it, it's interesting to me the relationship that I was going to say consumers, but maybe that's the wrong term. I, I, I guess the position that poetry holds for kind of, you know, the general reading audience. Mm -hmm. I have the sense that, you know, like a hundred years ago, let's say, the educated person, like every educated person sort of was immersed in poetry and, you know, could quote poems by heart and had sort of an appreciation for for different kind of you know strands of poetry and that we seem to have lost that right like it's poetry seems to have been displaced in the kind of common core knowledge of even educated people by something else like I don't maybe it's it, it's sort of prose literature or just you know popular music or something like I could yeah well I, I think I think you're on to something there with the music uh, it's still there. I, I did an article about a uh, Texas slash Australian beat poet, uh, slam poet, uh, Ariel Cottingham, who is a devotee of Shelley's. Uh, and, um, you know, to, to sort of show that it that's still there. And I also uh, looked at Eminem, right, as uh, so this I think you're, you're finding that that's where you will find that to the extent that you're finding it. And you're right. I think I think for someone of his era, if you wanted to express radicalism, it was either through essays, which he wrote, or poetry. Um, and you're right. Everybody read it. In fact, um, you know, he um, he's famous for having written in the uh, in in the register of the hotel. He went to Chamonix to see Mont Blanc with his wife. And when he signed in at the register, he had this, people don't think Shelley's funny, he's pretty funny. And so in the register, it said, you know, where are you from? Where are you going? And, and who are you? He had a chance to write who you were. So he wrote the, I forget what he said about where he was from, but carefully written into the column about where he was going was l'enfer, going to hell. And then in his describe who you are, it said he was, it was written in Greek, uh, he said he was philanthropos tropos, uh, which was a very carefully chosen term that came from uh, Aeschylus, I think, which basically means I'm a humanist. And he said he was a Democrat, which means he's an anti-monarchist. And he said he was an atheist, all in Greek. And so people at first, when they first encountered this, and we still have that, somebody tore that page out and it showed up and you can see it in the... Uh, you can see it in the in the uh, uh, in a museum. I have, and but it was in Greek, and he chose Greek because it was the language of liberty, so that would be inflammatory. But the other thing was he knew everybody could, everybody who's going to that hotel could read Greek, and and it was like the English aristocracy. It was part of the grand tour, and sure enough, he became more famous for saying that he was a philanthropos tropos Democrat and atheist during his lifetime than almost any poem he wrote. Huh. And I mean, one of the fascinating things about him and his life and his body of work, to me at least, is he, I mean, he died awfully young. Yeah. Right. Like he, mm -hmm. he, I don't even, he was he even 30 when he died. No, no. Yeah. He died just uh, a 200th anniversary of his, of his birthday was uh, just uh, the 4th of August and he was just 29. Wow. And so you encountered him or, or sort of started reading him when you were in your 20s, it sounds like. Yeah, that's at right. University. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you've maintained a relationship with his work, you know, in the uh, mm -hmm. ensuing decades. How has your relationship to him and his work and your view of him changed over time? Well, I guess, if anything, it's sort of become 
more radical. Um, I at first looked at him um, more psychologically. I was inter interested in his psychology. And, you know, the, some of the poems can be very dreamlike. So it was almost like doing a dream analysis uh, of some of his work. But, you know, the, then, then, you know, as time went on, uh, I, I reacquainted myself and uh, really started to dig deeper into his uh, radical heritage. And look, I'm not the only person that did this. There, there, it's interesting who, who he attracted. And, and um, so, for example, there was a book called The Young Shelley, read, read, written by, uh, in 1950. It was a book designed to rehabilitate him by Kenneth Neal Cameron. Kenneth Neal Cameron is an unreconstructed Stalinist. <laughs> I think he's dead now. Uh, but he was as hardcore Marxist as you could get. You don't get that flavor from the book, but that's who he was. And at the same time, uh, uh, and then about 20 years later, a crusading socialist journalist in England, Paul Foote, uh, wrote perhaps one of the best known books about Shelley called Red Shelley. Uh, and it was another effort by the left wing to reclaim his heritage and to bring his radicalism to the surface and uh i uh i i you know i thought i worshiped those books i still think that the young shelley is a work of genius and uh, and there were others um who focused on his atheism problem for me was that by the 80s and i think this persists to today academics write wonderful books about Shelley in a language that is impenetrable to the general public entirely. And yet there are brilliant ideas in those books about Shelley that help us understand him, but they are lost in academic jargon. And so I felt, you know, it was, it was like about eight, I forget when I started my website, but I thought, you know, we need to get his ideas unpacked and made available to the public. And so how can I do that? So I started a website and then thought, well, I need, I need an amplification point for the website. So I'll do a Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram, and it all worked out very, very well, but it was all designed to unpack and make public, going back to your first question, the real Shelley. This is who he was, how I believe he would have wanted to have been uh, represented. And so it was teasing out uh, his, uh, you know, his, his radicalism uh, and the various causes that he supported and how he changed the world. Because when you're dealing with Shelley, you're dealing with somebody who actually had ideas that had in his lifetime very little influence, but after his lifetime, extraordinary political influence. When somebody has a level of commitment to, you know, a particular artist or say a, a movement uh, within a, a genre, I find that that can end up coloring how they approach and appreciate other art and artists. Mm -hmm. Does that happen with you? Like, do you sort of is Shelley the lens through which you look at all other poets or, or music or, you know, any, like, is, is he sort of the standard by which you measure art? Yeah. So I want to see 
I, I wrote an article about the clash and Shelley, right? And uh, it, it's that uh, song about you grow up and you calm down. You're working for the clamp down, right? <laughs> and uh, I remember when I first started working uh, at my first law firm, I thought, fuck, I'm working for the clamp down. Uh, you start wearing <laughs> blue and brown. You're working for the clamp down. Jesus, I'm working for the clamp down. Uh, and uh, so, uh, but I, so yes, yeah, so I would look at that and I would go, oh man, that is a very Shellyan, you know, comment uh, for The Clash to have made. And then I thought another favorite band of mine was Tom Robinson, Power in the Darkness. So I want, I definitely in my music, I like to see, not all of it, but I like to see politics. I like to see people who want to change the world. And, and so this goes back to something Shelley said in a dispute with a friend of his. A friend of his said, poetry is useless, basically. Nobody should read poetry to provoke them. And he wrote this famous tract called Defensive, Sh uh, Defensive Poetry. In it, he makes this comment. Poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. So I, first thing I do when I try to explain that to anybody is to say, take out the un, right? Because he, <laughs> he's somebody's saying that poets are worthless. And so he's saying, no, they're unacknowledged. But if you take out the un and we just unpack to the basics, he is saying poets are the legislators of the world. They may be unacknowledged, but they're the legislators of the world. What in God's name does that mean? They pass laws. He actually thought of a legislator as in the 18th century sense of a representative of the people in parliament. So what he's saying is, I think, poets are the voice of the people. Mm -hmm. And it, later on, he talks about them being uh, mirrors of a gigantic futurity. So what is it that they're doing? They speak for the people and imagine a better world. So that's how I unpack that. And if that's true of not just poets, but all artists, that's what makes them so important to society. They speak for the general public and they speak about a better future, which is why so many authoritarians and dictators act to clamp down on art because it's dangerous. Ursula K. Le Guin said that dictators fear poets. Mm -hmm. Again, not just poets, artists, all creators. They're dangerous. And they're dangerous because they, they, they are a voice of the people, scary to authoritarians, and they see a better future. And that, for me, is so if I don't see that in art, if I'm just, if, you know, if, I, if I'm just seeing art for art's sake, I'm getting a little, ugh, really, I remember um, at one of, and I always try to work Shelley into everything that I do. And I, I was at one of my global forums and I mentioned Shelley and how great he was and somebody from the audience, and I was talking about his politics and somebody from the audience went, Keats. and I went, uh, art for art's sake, guy. <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, why are you? No, don't criti don't criticize poor little Keats. Um, but yeah, so that so definitely, it's it's a lens, right? I always struggle a bit with if it's a description of art or or a sort of a normative statement about art that that great art 
challenges you or is iconoclastic in some way. Yeah. And I struggle with the relationship between that and beauty, right? Mm -hmm. Like, is there some obligation uh, or some sense in which great art should be beautiful in addition to or in conjunction with challenging you in some way. So is there a sense in which Shelley's work is beautiful? Like, does he write beautiful poetry in addition to, you know, poetry that that sort of has this power to change the world and, and express kind of these radical positions? Yeah, um, I, I think some of his poetry is is amongst the most beautiful in the English language. I mean, that you know, that, that Arethusa arose from her couch of snows in the Acris Serenian mountains and leaping and duking and blah, 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 blah. I mean, it, there's mellifluousness to it. And in fact, yeah, I talked about those Victorians who didn't like his politics. What did they like? He loved his lyric. He's probably the greatest lyric writer in the language. And again, I'd love to be able to just rattle off some lyrics for you, but I can't. So yes, he 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 absolutely appreciated great beauty, uh, but also uh, built in uh, his uh, you know his built politics into it, and you know I think great art isn't just about being you know it's the it's the you know you'll have great art that's beautiful and then you'll have great art that you know is sublime. Remember they had the diff the sublime and the beautiful, right. they had this sort of distinction between the two, but definitely great art challenges us because it's asking us to see the world differently um and that's how um and, you know that's how we avoid uh groupthink that's that's why it's you know that's why exposure to culture is an essential component of avoiding author authoritarianism and dictators and donald trumps of the world you know shelley believed that 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 you, the, you know, which brings us to it, to maybe to atheism. What Shelley saw was a world in which people had had their agency taken away from them. That's what we would say in modern terms. So the peasants have no agency. The 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 workers have no agency. Religious worshippers have no agency. Right. And his famous poem, Mont Blanc, uh, and, and uh, that statement about being an atheist was written in response to Coleridge, who had gone to Mont Blanc, looked at Mont Blanc and this sublime sight and had said, oh, this is so sublime. I look at this and I can see nothing else but the work of the hand of God. And uh, who can stand here and not see the hand of God? And Shelley's response was, uh, I can. And it's in crucially important to look at the world and not and, and see a vacancy. You have to look at the world and, 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 and assume responsibility for it. If, 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 it's, if, if the world is determined by external forces, a God who arranges things, and also a God who conveniently anoints kings and, 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 and Christo-fascists and, and, and Islamo-fascists, conveniently anointed by God. And the message that runs right through it is you're not really in control of this. You should not, you should just let your betters 
run this. You have no agency. So it, to, for him, you start by assuming full responsibility for the world that you live in. And no, it's not, you know, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. There's no God. So, um, yeah, I, I think, uh, I, I think that uh, the, so, so, ha, so once you can see a vacancy, you have to fill it with knowledge. And how would he do that? How would we do that? Books, literature, art, meeting people, all of those different ways. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one thing, so look, like I, I, before I started reading your, your stuff on Shelley, I, I hadn't, I had no appreciation for him or, or poetry generally. I really liked E.E. E. Cummings. He's kind of my guy. Yeah, um, I love him too. <laughs> but um, one of the things which I find fascinating about Shelley and, and the sort of the way that you've presented him and, and talk about his work is he's not, he's not a nihilist, right? He's a no. radical in the sense that he challenges what he sees, but there's a content to what he's proposing, right? Like he's not yeah. sort of tear everything down for the sake of tearing it down. There's something to be put in place once mm. we've challenge these outmoded structures yeah. and so to me as, as sort of you know uh, not somebody who's particularly well versed in this stuff that's quite compelling and I can see why his work resonates 200 years later for people who mm. approach him in different contexts at different times of their lives and in, in you know very different environments is that you talked about this protean nature that he has is his work and and are his positions sort of I don't want to hang too heavy of a, a cloak on him, but is his work sort of timeless in that sense? Is that why we're still talking about him? Yeah, I um, was listening to a panel on his uh, 200th anniversary of his death, and there was an Italian uh, academic who was asked, why do we still read Shelley? And she said, because young people see their issues in what he writes. And I certainly noticed that on my website. What when I would publish stuff about Shelley, and I, you know, people would be smashing the likes and so forth. It would be about political things, um, and you know, I developed an audience, you know, and I've let the site unfortunately go a bit moribund. But you know, it was like five thousand people who were following my Facebook page. And they were pretty real. I used to see them all. I, you know, I interacted with them, and, and you know, it was a real group. It was all over the world, uh, but uh, they were very keenly interested in the politics and less so in the lyric. Although everybody still said, "Oh, but I, I love the lyric too." Is we'll turn the corner here because uh, I know you're being very generous with your time. But uh, so, last few questions. What actually I'd been wanting to talk to you about Shelley for for a long time. What actually prompted me to reach out to you for this particular conversation was a video that you had posted earlier this year, where you were on the beach mm -hmm. at Via Reggio, which is where his body washed ashore. Yeah. You and I don't know each other particularly well, but I. I get the sense you're not a particularly emotionally demonstrative guy. But when I watched that video, it seemed to me like there was something about being physically there on that beach, which spoke to you in some way. Can you talk us through sort of yeah. what, how you got there and what yeah, happened I, there? 
I got choked up. I was, uh, you know, I started crying. I had to st stop myself. And then after the camera went off, I did. Um, and you're right, you know, I don't, that doesn't normally surface. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I, I had gone to um, that area of, uh, of Italy where he lived out uh, the, the end of his life with Mary uh, and a couple of other friends. Byron was in the region, excuse me, in the region. And um, so I was doing tours around and, you know, I, I went to the, to the place where uh, he had left in his little boat. And I stood up on uh, the top of a hotel and uh, looked out and I could see the, where he would have sailed out and, you know, off to the north. And it just happened that day that it, it looked very scary, the weather. And so, you know, I, I started to get, you know, into that feeling and, and somehow getting on the beach. And, you know, we know pretty damn sure it's almost exactly there that this poor guy, uh, you know, who, whose life was cut short and you could look north and I looked north. I think I even refer to, you know, like there's where Mary was just waiting, you know, twiddling her thumbs. When's Shelley coming back? And uh, I found it very sort of profoundly emotionally for me because also it was a journey. Um, and, you know, it, it's also, there's a bit of a complex family thing here too, because my father was uh, a Shellyan, uh, which is what we call ourselves. And he had taken that pilgrimage uh, a long time before I did. And so I was kind of walking in his uh, shoes uh, and experiencing maybe some of the things that he experienced. But, you know, we, he and I had had a very difficult relationship all our lives on everything. And I never really came to terms with my father until after his death. And even now, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, I, you know, I, I certainly honor my dad and all that kind of stuff. But we didn't have a great relationship. <laughs> when I was uh, at university, I finished my MA and they found a copy of it for you. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I go home and uh, in my, my father's very formal. I went home, saw my mom in the kitchen and uh, I had to go and knock on the door to gain admittance to the study. <laughs> my father, yes, Gray, come in. And I came and I said, well, dad, uh, I finished my MA thesis and I have a copy. It's on Shelley and I'd like to give it to you. And uh, he, uh, uh huh, yes, thank you. Well, he says, I shall put it with the rest of my Shelleyana. And he, and I, I'm like, what, the rest of your what? To myself. And he didn't even open it. You know, he just put it up on the shelf. And as he puts it up on the shelf, I'm like, holy crap. There's like, eight linear feet of books on Shelley here. What's going on? And I left the room. My mom says to me, you know, what did your dad do to you? I said, you look like you've seen a ghost. And I said, I kind of think I have. I had no idea that guy thought of himself as a Shellian. Huh. And when I kind of dug into, well, what sort of a Shellian was he? Well, he was the Victorian type. He didn't like Shelley's politics. Mm. And my dad was a real cold warrior, very anti-communist guy. And I found this tiny little tract. It was like a 40-page booklet written by a philosopher about Shelley. And I can't remember the guy's name now, famous guy. And my dad wrote in the margins of books like I do. Anyway, there was one 
paragraph about Shelley's politics in this book. And my father had written in very firm pencil in capital letters, not a communist, exclamation mark. <laughs> and uh, I looked at that, uh, oh, fuck. Yes, he was. <laughs> yes, he was, Dad. You know, and I found this after he was dead. And one of my friends right. once said to me, "Do you you have arguments with your father in marginalia?" I said, well, I do. <laughs> um, but so we had we were these polar opposites. Right. He liked that guy who was religious. People actually saw him as Christian, just an errant Christian, hmm. um, which drives me crazy. So. So, yeah, so it was very emotional to get there in my father's footsteps, contemplating his engagement with my favorite poet, my engagement with his favorite poet. It's kind of weird. That's fascinating that Shelley's work sort of is, is a sort of site for, I guess, kind of an ongoing conversation between, between yes. you and your father. Yeah, and for those of us who had or have challenging relationships with parents, I can, that's, uh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Shelley has a, a large body of work. If somebody's interested in Shelley and, and wants to learn more, do you have any suggested sort of starting points? Like where should they start reading Shelley? That's a very good question. Well, um, I would start if I, I think that a, a great gateway drug is uh, the poem uh, Ozymandias. And the, the reason I say that um, is because uh, it's, it, it, it in many uh, respects encapsulates so much of his, his theory of life. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tells that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is the Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. No thing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So packed into those few lines is this incredible idea of the revolution of time, but also that it is possible that the tyrants of the past will die. And will go away, and they, you know, it's it. The images of, you know, you can think of the the Sphinx falling apart and all forgotten. But the message in the poem is, this too shall pass. And as mighty as they are, they will die. Now, for Shelley, and you made this point earlier, and I think this is a good way to sort of culminate. You you said he, you know, like he he had a program. He did, and. He, here's what I would say. So he he believed in the importance of revolution. He wasn't a nihilist. He also wasn't a utopian, but he was a perfectibilist. He believed the world could gradually get better. So how does it get better? Well, first of all, we start by getting rid of religion because religion is the handmaiden of, of, of tyranny. 
But what else do we need? Why do all these revolutions fail? Why does the French Revolution arise and then we end up with Napoleon? Well, he believed because the important revolution that needed to take place was the revolution in our head, which, by the way, ties us to music. My favorite book on the Beatles is by Ian Fraser, and it's called Revolution in the Head. So this re what is a revolution in the head? What does it mean? Well, he would talk about love. And the moment you say, oh, the revolution, oh, right, hippies, peaceniks, love, that sort of love. <laughs> but when you look at how Shelley was not a love poet in that sense. If you look at how he used the term love, he meant empathy. If you want to call Shelley a poet of anything, you could say he's a poet of empathy. He had an ability to put himself in other people's shoes. He had the ability to experience other experiences, and he believed that that's how you change the world, hmm. right? He famously referred to dictators as slaves. And people go, how could they be a slave? Because they're a slave to their, their desires. They're a slave to their all of the baser instincts. They are slaves. And a free man or free woman, free person, has to cast off that slavery. And we do that through love, empathy. And what better way to access and develop our sense of empathy than through culture? That's why I'm an artist activist. That's why I fought for copyright reform, or I fought to get money into the hands of recording artists, or I tried to get them better contracts, and I believe other people, because it is a worthy goal. They're changing the world. They're the representatives of us. We need to help them. We need to facilitate what they do because they can see a better future. And if we have that empathy, we will not elect another single Trump. <laughs> Fantastic. What a great yeah. culmination. I couldn't have scripted that better. So Graham, yeah. where, where can people find your thoughts and, and investigations into Shelley? Well, yeah, you asked me where to start for folks. I would say www.grahamhenderson.ca. It's uh, a treasure trove of, uh, of other people's writings. Um, it's a great gateway. You know, I can't think of a single, you know, the biographies tend to be lengthy. Um, and I can't think of an article off the top of my head that I would recommend. But if you do want to dive in, go to my website. There's my crazy writing. I've got uh, videos. Um, and you know what? Uh, I got to tell you, Bob, I, I haven't written much for a year. Uh, but, you know, I'm uh, I, you're kind of inspiring me. Oh, one other thing I'll say, the last person I published on my site was a young fella from Pennsylvania who was 16 when he wrote an article. What what Shelley means to me. Very interesting. And he found Shelley through my work. And I figure if there's if, if Oliver, if all I ever did was influence one young firebrand, I've accomplished my goal. Amazing. Yeah, look, it, it is. I mean, you're not just patting yourself on the back there. It is really a treasure trove. It's a fantastic <laughs> website. It was a gateway for me. So uh, highly recommended. Graham, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate you having this conversation with me today and sharing these insights and, and your passion for Shelley. This has been great. Well, thank you so much for being interested and giving me the chance. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, 
leaving a review, liking it, sharing it with your friends, or inflicting it on your enemies. If you're still listening, you're probably the only one who's doing so. The secret number is 42. To claim your no prize, send an email with the secret number in the subject line to bob at bobgotamicrophone.com.